Welcome to Holy Unhappiness, conversations about the expectations we have of what the life of faith will feel like. I'm your host, Amanda Held Opelt, author of the book, Holy Unhappiness, God, Goodness, and the Myth of the Blessed Life. Each week, I'll be speaking with writers, pastors, artists, and friends about the myths we believe about the good life. Together, we'll reimagine what blessing can look like if we are willing to look beyond our culture's definition of happiness and success. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. everyone. Today on the podcast, we are going to be talking about one of those little mini chapters that I have in my book, Holy Unhappiness. These newfound blessings that I discovered once I was willing to kind of reimagine what goodness might look like. And this is the blessing of humility. Now, the question of humility, I think, really gets to the heart of why I wrote this book. It's kind of why I had to write the book. Because somewhere in my mid-30s, I realized that I'd been measuring the quality of my life or the quality of my happiness by how much I was being seen for my service. So my worth was not so much in God or even in the ways that I could like serve God, but in how much, I guess, respect and praise I was being given for serving God And of course, when worldly recognition is the well from which you draw your satisfaction, it will never be enough. You'll always be thirsty. And so for me to reimagine a more sustainable form of joy and contentment, I had to closely examine whether or not humility, which I had always claimed to be a value of mine, was actually a value in my life. And I knew if I was going to talk about humility, that I wanted to invite Hannah Anderson onto the podcast. Hannah Anderson is an author and a speaker, and she lives with her family in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. As an author, she encourages readers to consider how the gospel impacts every area of life. You can connect with her at her website, sometimesalight.com. She is the author of many books. Um, The one we're going to be talking about today is Humble Roots, How Humility Grounds and Nourishes Your Soul. And she's also the author of a new children's book called The World God Made. I'm really, really excited to have her on the podcast. I think you're going to find this conversation to be really transformative. Hannah Anderson is here on the podcast. I'm so excited. Thank you for thank you for coming on. I am so happy to be here, Amanda. Really. Um, 
My husband really kindly pointed out to me that every time I say hello to my guest, um, I start giggling and he's like, are you nervous? Or like, what are you excited? I'm just excited. I'm just so excited that folks are willing to come on and talk to me about their books, about their work. And um, that's well, true you, for you, you too. No, it's just an excuse to have the conversations we should be having anyway. So. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Um, Hannah and I met, for our listeners, we met actually um, not too long ago at the Hope Words Conference in Bluefield, West Virginia. If any listeners are in the area or if you live far away, it's well worth your time to come to that conference. It's usually in the spring, um, just in beautiful region of central Appalachia. Uh, great writers uh, come and just talk about what it means to write with hope and uh, it's just, I don't know, it's a special, it's a special conference. Um, it is. It's a little bohemian, a little niche, little, mm-hmm. we're making it up as we go along. But the one thing we know is it's deeply rooted in Bluefield. Yeah. So it, it's trying to merge out of a place and find the story of that place and inviting people who come to find their own stories. Um, so that energy is really woven into the DNA of the conference, and it's just exciting to see what it turns out to be every year. Yeah, yeah. So Hannah and I are both, um, we are both proud uh, inhabitants of the region of Appalachia and advocates for the region. So it's it's really great to have you here. I feel like we have, there's so much <laughs> you and I can talk about. I feel like we can talk for hours whenever we chat. It just feels like, gosh, I wish I had more time. Um, and reading your book, I mean, I really invited you on to talk about humility and talk about your book, uh, Humble Roots, but it's only one of how many books have you written? Five, six? Yeah, that sounds right. I said um, five-ish. Yes. <laughs> so, so a number of books, so many that she can't quite keep up with how many she, she's written. Um, but reading that book, I just so resonated, uh, not only with just some of the agrarian imagery that you use in it, your um, the the wisdom you draw from observing nature and the land, but also your own personal struggle with this virtue of humility. Um, and I actually picked up the book after I had submitted my manuscript for Holy Unhappiness. Uh, and reading your introduction was really comforting because it actually sounded a lot like the introduction to my book. Um, and it, I was like, okay, finally, this uh, this experience of kind of knowing that your life on paper is good, but you're still experiencing stress and anxiety. Like, I am not the only person who has experienced this. Like, Hannah Anderson, who I admire deeply, <laughs> has also experienced this. So I just want you to tell me a little bit more about that feeling of discontent and anxiety that you describe at the beginning of Humble Roots. Yeah, like, what ultimately led you to write about that and to write a book about humility? Yeah, so Humble Roots kind of came out of a season of my life where, like you said, everything on paper looked perfect. Mm. And anyone who heard what my life was at the time, you know, I have young kids, I have a happy life and family, heavily integrated into my little local community, Mm. serving in a local church, my husband's in ministry, I'm writing, I'm getting opportunities to speak. And it is the Instagrammable life. It's what we all imagine, like, if I could just have these things. And so that was juxtaposed with a deep anxiety and a deep unhappiness. Mm -hmm. And so there was this question I had, how can I have all the things that are supposed to make me feel fulfilled and happy 
and still go to bed at night deeply anxious, deeply overwhelmed, not able to sleep, get up the next day, my mind racing with all these anxious thoughts. And that really just led me to a question. Um, the, the scripture, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29, where Jesus calls his followers to come to him to find rest. Yeah. Um, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I was like, okay, I'm definitely there. I'm yeah. definitely that. I get that. the weary. I get the heavy laden. <laughs> um, and of course, that passage goes on, you know, take your, my yoke upon you, learn from me. And I think the thing that jumped out to me was that we weren't just being called to Jesus. We were being called to inhabit Jesus's way in the world. Mm -hmm. And his way in the world to learn from him was that he was meek and lowly of heart. And the language there is the language of humility. Um, You know, different translations will render it differently, but, but ultimately underneath it is basically a call from Christ to come and learn humility and that is going to be the source of our rest. And I was like, okay, we need to unpack that. And so the book was really just for me to unpack what is the connection between humility, anxiety, rest, and how do you enter back into your life? Maybe not changing anything about it, yeah, but with a humble spirit that allows you to navigate it with greater peace and rest. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm actually going to read, I have bookmarked the page where you you talk about that Matthew 11 passage. You write, um, my peace, uh, my lack of peace was undeniable. My spirit was agitated, my mind restless, my emotions on edge. So when I read, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, I immediately identified But when I read, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, it didn't make much sense. I recognized the symptoms. I just wasn't sure I agreed with the diagnosis. But being busy with good things didn't make me immune to pride. This is what really stuck out to me. If anything, those of us who are busy, quote unquote, working for Jesus may be the first to miss that we are struggling with pride because it can hide behind our good intentions. Um. I it hit like so many underlined stars on that on that paragraph um, because I really resonated with that. Why why do you think? Talk a little bit more about that. Why do you think people who work in service to the Lord are especially susceptible to pride? Yeah, the the catch twenty two of this when when you approach um, your search for rest and peace and, and you hear that maybe the solution is humility, mm-hmm. and the opposite of that is that. Maybe the problem is pride. Right. And and that just hits you like a truck because yeah. we have cultural understandings of what humility and pride look like. And I would say that most of us who are really trying to show up in our lives, trying to serve our communities, serve God, we're, we're trying to be humble. Like, right. We absolutely are not trying to put ourselves at the center of the world. We're not trying to um, get attention for ourselves mm-hmm. necessarily. We want to serve. And yeah. so we think the serving then equals humility mm. because we're putting ourselves in a place of service. Right. But one of the things that became clear to me is that there's a way to work that is self-reliant. Mm. And that the pride is not an arrogance or a boastfulness or a swagger necessarily. It's an 
overestimation of our abilities. It, it's that self-reliance, that sense of confusing ourselves with God mm. and what we're capable of, what we can control, what we can't control, kind of overestimating our power, overestimating our knowledge, overestimating our endurance. And one of the passages in the Old Testament that kind of brought this together for me is Micah 6, 8, because, you know, it's the heartbeat of all of us who want to see the world change. You know, yeah. what does God require of you except to um, do justice, love mercy? Yeah. And walk humbly with your God. And I yeah. think we really resonate with those first two kind of um, commands, but they cannot be actualized without that third piece mm. that the call to justice and mercy is a call that is lived out through humility and through that kind of humbly walking with God, knowing who is God and who isn't. And so that became the kind of frame of reference for me, defining humility, not as being the wallflower or, you know, like a personality trait or the person who defers praise. Humility is the person who knows where they belong in the world. Um, they're not lower than they should be. They're not higher than they should be. They're right where they should be. And they know the limits in both directions. And they know mm-hmm. who is God and who isn't God. And it's not us. Yeah. Well, and I think for me, I think I realized during the writing of this book, like, I mean, writing a book is spiritual formation <laughs> in so many ways because it forces you to confront mm-hmm. Um your besetting sins, if you will. (laughs) And I I think I realized like, for me, it was it's this kind of like hamster wheel of achievement and accolades, achievement and approval, Um, doing good things for God and being told, good job for doing good things for God, because I grew up in the Christian subculture, you know, I was given ribbons for memorizing scripture. And I know my sister used to always like, brag about winning the best Christian attitude award. We had an award at our Christian school called the best Christian attitude award in which your peers would vote on who was the best person in the class. And she won in like third grade, but I won in second, third. And if I'm not mistaken, fourth grade, three years in a row, like my, like winning streak was unprecedented, Hannah. (laughs) And it's like, what did that teach me about Mm -hmm. why, I tried to embody Christ through my life. What did that teach me um, about, yeah, living for the Lord? And I I think just kind of unlearning that we don't do this for the trophies and we don't do this for the recognition has been harder than I'd like to admit. (laughs) Because the the opposite side of that coin then, because I had a very similar kind of reward system that I grew up in. And so I'm, um, you know, I'm an A plus kind of girl mm-hmm. and I'm going to show up and I'm going to do the thing that is expected of me, be mm-hmm. rewarded. I, I don't think I actually wanted the reward. I just wanted to be what was expected of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't want to disappoint anyone. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but the, the the opposite side of that is not just unlearning why you're doing good things, mm-hmm. but what happens when you do bad things? You, mm. you don't have a mechanism. You don't have a way of processing 
okay, here's the reward for this good thing. But humility also works. It works in a, a kind of way that says, here's my, um, my goodness is dependent on God, right? Mm. I, I can't be the center of my own good work. So, so it operates in that way. Yeah. But over the years, even since learning, writing the book, I've also learned that humility operates in the sense of, um, yes, of course you did something bad because you're a sinner, you're human, yeah. Yeah. right? And I remember when I was young, maybe first, second grade, something happened at school. And I don't, I don't know if it was, I got a demerit, I got a worm in my apple. I was <laughs> crying at home. My grandma, she's this Appalachian mountain woman. And she says, well, Hannah, you're just a person. You're just a human being. I'd be worried if you didn't get a demerit. <laughs> so Thanks, Grandma. That, that, that sense of reminding us of our humanity, both in our goodness and in our failures. And mm. I think that's what humility really is about. Again, it's that remember who you are. Mm. You're not God. You're a human being. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you're not a worm. You're a human being. Yeah. And so humility has that multiple directions that it's working on you. So it puts you right where you're supposed to be. Yeah. It's it's a, you write about this phrase that's floating around a lot in culture right now, and you're alluding to it now. This this mm -hmm. phrase: "Be true to yourself." Mm -hmm. Um. I think the message of humility is perhaps the most countercultural message mm. that the Christian faith has to offer the world right now. Because I talked with Sharon Hottie Miller about this a little bit, this idea that like if you're if you're feeling bad about yourself, the solution is to tell yourself how amazing you are and to pat yourself on the back and pump yourself up and but really you just end up thinking more and more and more about yourself, which is wearisome and exhausting but i want to know i want to know your thoughts on what what do you think in a in a biblical sense in a truly human humble perspective what does it mean to be true to yourself how can we reclaim that phrase a little bit you're so right that humility is what we are in desperate need of right now and and it's not just again it's not just the um talk less about yourself or think less about yourself. It's think rightly about yourself. Yeah. And we live in a very inhumane world where being human is a liability. And so the call to be true to yourself or whatever is almost a call. The subtext is be more than human, be mm. superhuman, yeah. find within yourself that divine energy and, and project it out into the world. Um, when we, hear that language though be true to yourself i i think there's there's a grain here that we're trying we're seeking something so mm -hmm. so we use this language because we're attempting to find something yeah and i think what we're attempting to find is that that humane understanding of ourselves that both um names who we are as individuals um and also does give us permission to be human. But from a Christian perspective, what we're actually seeking is to become the people we were made to be. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's where it shifts for me. 
I think in the be true to yourself kind of um, expression and culture, the assumption is you will make yourself, you will project yourself out into the world. When I think of humility, it's a surrender to who God has made me to be and placed me where he has placed me. And that actually may be a better dream than I have for myself currently. Mm. And, and when God gets to define who we are in our humanity, in our individual humanity, sometimes that means submitting to bigger dreams than we would dream personally. But it's not out of this need to project ourselves and actualize ourselves into the world. It's my creator made me. He put this together this way. He's guided my life. There's providence even in the difficult things. And showing up in that life is an act of submission. And I would say ultimately an act of humility. Yeah. I was just saying to somebody yesterday, uh, somebody who said they're, they're not religious and they're not particularly interested in Christianity, just saying that despite my doubts, I've had many of them about my faith, the what there are two things that keep me coming back to the story of Jesus, the incarnation, the, the humility of God taking on human flesh, um, but also like um, the the anthropology of the Christian faith that says we are all image bearers. Like it doesn't matter who you are, like race, socioeconomic group, no matter when you were born, where you were born, every, no matter what you're capable of, every single human person has divine worth. That held in union, not necessarily tension, but in union with the idea that we're all flawed and we're all sinners. And the, the Bible's willing to name that because in our culture, I feel like we're really reluctant to name that we're flawed or, you know, it's all about building the self and building the self-esteem. And there's a lot of benefits to that. But the downside to me, the dead end is then when I do make mistakes and there's no explanation for it. And what am I supposed to do with this? With the, I feel like God gives me an answer. Like Christ gives me an answer to that. And that is that we, we are broken. There's something really freeing about that, but I think missing in culture today. Absolutely. And I, th I think what you're getting at is, again, the two sides of the same coin. Exactly. Um, we are a culture that lacks grace of any kind. Like, there, there is no margin for error. And um, we, we see this, and there's no margin for growth. Because there's no margin for error, there's no process to learn from mistakes because once you make the mistake, whatever it is, I mean, th this is across the board. This is within religious culture. This is within, you know, the, the subcultures that we know it's within um, more secular culture and the, the standards of what is righteous may be different, but, but once you infringe on that, there is no way back. Um, and, and part of that I think is just kind of, a feature of modernity that always upward, always progressing, mm -hmm. always better, you know, climbing that ladder of success, however you define success. So again, if we introduce humility into the equation, it both tempers our sense that we can self-create, but it also elevates us and says, of course you made a mistake. Of course this happened. And this is where we find the grace and forgiveness that we need that allows us to learn. Because if it is a zero-sum game, there's no learning, too. There's no development. Yeah. 
Um, and I'm sure you, you know this even with parenting. If if your kids have uh, um, no way back when something happens, they're just not going to keep trying. They're not going to grow. They're not going to develop. It's going to yeah. stunt. It's going to stunt their growth. Yeah. So th- that recognition of our own flawed human nature mm-hmm. and our ability to recognize that in other people. Yeah. And say, okay, great. Sorry, we're forgiven. Let's grow. Yeah. Let's learn from that and move forward. Yeah. We're we're teasing out these cultural forces that the mm-hmm. virtue of humility is up against. But I'd love to hear you t- talk a little bit about, you know, how you think even like social media and our mm-hmm. online discourse, um, the fact that that's kind of one of our primary ways of connection is reshaping our anthropology and thought patterns. Like obviously, you know, Neil Postman writes about this in his well-known book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, about how the mediums that we use for communication shape our anthropology. You know, um, oral cultures are more communal and cultures where long-form writing is more accepted kind of shape our brains to delve into nuance and therefore maybe develops empathy for our adversaries. It's such an interesting book. But so here we are now and we're taking in bite-sized you know, little sound bites of opinions online in these disembodied spaces. We're curating our identities in these online platforms. How is that working against the virtue of humility? How is that shaping our anthropology in your mind? Well, you know, we've already touched on the the projecting of ourselves out into the world, like this this image that we feel the need to project, this kind of... A, it could be attention seeking, but I think it's actually just the attempt to self create and to to feel worthy. Um, so that so obviously that's one thing that's happening in terms of um, you know how the online space is not conducive to hu- the formation of humility. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I wrote about in the book, I have a chapter on epistemological humility. And it's um, basically coming to an understanding of the limitations of our mind and the limitations then of our opinions and our ability to even be right about something. Um, And one of the things that happens, obviously, people are probably aware of the tribalism and our ability to argue and the failure to listen and the speed at which this is happening. Um, You know, so that is shaping how we then interpret the rightness of our opinions. And so it, it locks in this sense of, plus you can find someone who agrees with you and supports yeah. you. So yep. there you go. I must be right. But one of the things I think on a more profound level that has changed is um, search engines. Mm-hmm. So Googling um, has given us the ability or it's tricked us into thinking we know more than we do. Mm-hmm. It's almost become an extension of our minds and because yeah. I can find information, because I can Google Web- WebMD, because I can do my research, <laughs> no. we have a we have a time limit on WebMD at our house. Like you are not yeah. allowed to access WebMD after nine p.m. because <laughs> it right. never goes well. <laughs> Anxiety. So, so that level at which we believe all this data is actually in our brain. Yeah. Like we confuse that. It is an external repository of facts Mm -hmm. and that our brain isn't 
actually capable of processing it. Yeah. But we, we interact with it and we come away and I'm sure you've noticed this. We're all like, no, no, I'm right. I researched this. Yeah. And so it, it challenges our ability to say, what do I know? What do I not know? Um, you know, who is an expert? You know, that, that sense of expertise is quickly, um, you know, we're losing that very quickly. So, and, and of course, you know, it's also this, this kind of digital age expands the boundaries of our life, like time, space no longer exist. And when you're an embodied creature, you still are living in the limits of time and space, but your experience of the world is saying you don't have to. And, and then that runs into conflict. And I think that's where a lot of the anxiety, the increased anxiety that we see, because our experience of the world, especially through digital portals, is running counter to who we actually are. Yeah. And humility brings us back to say, hey, remember who you are. Yeah. <laughs> remember your limits. Remember the limits of your mind. No, Even if this platform is telling you you don't have limits, remember that you do. Yeah. Well, let's talk then about being rooted and talk about being in a place and in a space. Um, there's, uh, sorry, I just have to read your words to you again. I know you've heard them. You wrote them, but I'm going to read them to you. Um, you write, this is on page 40, um, the belief that success is within our grasp also invades our churches. If only you are committed enough, if only you are passionate enough, you are told you can do great great things for God. (laughs) At first, this message is inspiring. It taps into your God-given desire to work and do good, and so you push and press and make your life count, quote-unquote, only to see celebrity speakers and megachurch pastors take center stage at sold-out conferences while you slog away at a small brick church that sits at a bend in the road. And suddenly, trying to change the world and seeing it stay very much the same feels nothing feels like nothing other than the weight of the world resting on your shoulders. Um, we are currently slogging it out at a relatively small church in a relatively small town. Um, and so I want to hear from you, how has serving in maybe a more rural context um, been spiritually formative for you? Well, I always go back to what humility is at its core, which is it is the knowledge of who we are. Um, it is an invitation into the into creaturehood, into limits. And I would say one of the places, at least within U.S. culture, that still has a sense of limit are rural spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's just distance or it's a lack of infrastructure, it's a lack of, um, you know, income, a lack of jobs, whatever the lack is. While that is a very hard thing um, and, and we need to find solutions for that, it also pushes up against the larger narrative of especially U.S. culture that there are no lack, there is no lack, there are no limitations. So living in a rural space, um, and, and over the years I've lived in a lot of different places within Appalachia, and like I've been in like former coal mining, I was raised in a former coal mining community. Um, and when you know 
the, when you know scarcity, right? When, when you experience that sense of, no, it's not just easy to get yeah. this. You, you also learn dependence. Hmm. Um, you learn dependence on God. You learn dependence on the other people in your community. And so I don't want to idealize rural life, but I think there is something spiritually formative that can't be learned in abundance mm-hmm. when there is no lack. Yeah. When, when the sky is the limit, when there is no limitation on who you could be or what you could do or the, the life that you want to lead, um, you become very independent even of God. Um, so the things I've noticed living in a place like this are, um, yeah, that kind of necessitated dependence, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's forced on you in some ways. And I think people, they see the rallying, like that communal spirit, and that is kind of idealized. And yeah. we see it in our um, popular literature, you know. We want that togetherness that we believe occurs in rural communities. We don't understand that it exists because of lack. Mm. Um, But I think that gives us, from a spiritual perspective, it it maybe helps us not be so afraid of not having everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we live in a pretty rugged part of the mountains here. And so it's like we are subject to our environment. Like, you know, it takes us three hours just to get out of here because you can't drive through the mountains. You have to go Mm -hmm. around them. And we are subject to the climate. We are frequently snowed in. And there's something I don't think I can ever live anywhere else (laughs) now because that the it's humiliating. Like in some ways, the mountains will humiliate you. (laughs) And they will put you in your place. They will. And, and, and I mean that like in all the uses of the word, like we're playing with this idea of humility, of knowing who you are and where you belong. And sometimes you need to be put in your place. Yes. Yeah. And, and the elements will do that in a way that all the books can't. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, within the book, obviously a lot of, I use a lot of gardening imagery, botanical imagery, and that's because this way of life you run up against your limitations really, really fast. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, speaking of limitations, I have two more questions for you. And I want to talk about my limitations. Um, I am a person that, again, that besetting sin of people pleasing. Uh, it's always there for me. I want your advice because I, I've said to people sometimes like, being an author and trying to be a little bit, you know, you're kind of working publicly in that way. It's almost like making like a former alcoholic go and work at a bar, you know, like you're trying to conquer this thing in you and you're constantly tempted um, by, you know, to, to, to fall back into it. So what's your advice to me as a new Christian author who's seeking to do this well? Well, I think we've talked about before, like my love hate relationship with social media and being out in public. And the only thing that really works for me is to care so much about the message Mm -hmm. that that's Mm -hmm. what carries it forward. Yeah. And there is a sense of being aware of your audience. Like for, for those of us who are too conscious of people, that doesn't mean we give up awareness Mm. of how our words enter the world and how people interpret them. Um, 
but I, I think, I, you know, I can give you the advice. Like we're, we work for an audience of one and that's mm. not actually true. Like, yes. <laughs> how dare you challenge that Christian platitude, Hannah? One <laughs> tells us to live in community yeah. and work for the good of other people. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I do think for me, the safety, God holding me safe. Yeah. Yeah. Allows me to be with people who may or may not be safe. Mm. Because the judgment's going to come. I mean, yeah. you can do everything right and the judgment's still going to come. Yeah. Um, especially online. And so the safety we're looking for from other people does have to come from a deeper place. Yeah. Um, and I do think, again, speaking about rootedness and, and our, our sense of where we belong, you also have to have safety with the people who actually know you. Mm. Um, and that becomes a kind of groundedness that allows you to do this more public work Yeah. Um, in safe ways. Yeah. Uh, that's a good word. It's a good one to end on. But I have one more question for you. I'm asking all of my guests this. Um, as you have grown in your walk of with the Lord and in your journey of faith, how has your perception or understanding of happiness or blessing yeah. changed? Yeah. I think for some reason along the way, I learned that if I did everything I was supposed to do, it would result in a happy, blessed life. Mm. So I read Proverbs and not Ecclesiastes. <laughs> and so I and applied this, it as a formula, correct? I had this rude awakening, you know, in adulthood that even if, even if I could do everything right, the world is not right. Mm -hmm. And the world is not going to reward your righteousness. Yeah. And other people will make wrong choices that will harm you yeah. and, and and take away the things that you thought were necessary to your happiness. Yeah. Like that that's one of the, the kind of understanding of Ecclesiastes is other people screw up your life. <laughs> <laughs> and and so for me, uncoupling, do the right things, be with the right people be in the right places will lead you to happiness yeah. and blessedness and understanding that whatever blessedness we get to enjoy in this life is grace. Yeah. And that this life is so deeply complex that when we find those moments of blessedness, we should pay attention to them. We should name them as gifts. We should name them as grace. And we should remember that they're going to show up in a multitude of places that we never expect. Mm. Well, that's a beautiful way to end. Uh, and talking with you is always a grace and always a gift. And I'm grateful for it. So thanks for coming on today, Hannah. I was glad to. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. 
Truly, I tell you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Thank you for joining us once again. I hope you tune in next time. We'll be talking to Caitlin Beatty about the church.